Greetings, ladies and mental gents, and welcome to this daily science fiction extravaganza, commonly known as Tales, Tales from Outer from space. Out, space. Out, space. Taken from the subreddit HFY, all the relevant links will be down below. And, as always, I hope that you enjoy, and if you do, please consider supporting the channel. On to the science fiction. Story number one. Economic Considerations. Written by Darren Adala. Prince Kazar had been surprised to see any fortifications at all along the cliffs facing the sea, but he took comfort in the knowledge that his enemies had, at least, made some very large mistakes. One of those mistakes had been to put the traitor's prison right at the edge of such an isolated wall, presumably to keep his spies out of the way even if they could escape, and while using them as an alvin shield against a naval attack. That had been a severe underestimation. His spies' fate bonds had shone like beacons, indicating that exact location of the prison. So, he had merely bombarded the wall with the cannons and fished the survivors from the ocean after the fact, such as the one who now knelt shivering on his deck. The fate bond on the spy's throat, symbol of vow loyalty he'd taken to Prince Kazar twenty years ago, was invisible to everybody else but burn clear and strong in Kazar's vision. If it had dulled, it would doubt his disloyalty during the long campaign. There was no way the Kazar would have allowed the spy in the room with him without the guards, but as it was, he dismissed them to their posts and sent for food, blankets, and medical attention. Your name? he asked. Aldeiru of Ekenzi of Princess Josiah. Oh, sorry, Prince Kazar, I mean, no... I take no offense to your so naturally inhabiting the role that you have been given, Kazar said, waving a hand dismissively. I am less interested in formalities than I am in learning what exactly has been happening here. I placed each of you in a place twenty years ago for a very specific purpose. Do you remember what that purpose was, Alderu? To foment trouble between the two other contenders for the island so that they would be weakened and surprised when you opened the borders to take the island, my prince. And this ocean should be empty of defenses, as they do not know of the method of killing mermaids and nobody would be crazy enough to mount a naval assault in mermaid-infested waters when there is a perfectly good mountain border to attack through, my prince. Then, uh, would you care to explain to me why, perhaps, why my feet has arrived expecting a nicely softened Princess Josiah and Prince Aniska with a wide, unguarded coast, and what we have found is instead an entirely watched and partly fortified coast with nowhere to land our boats out of range of enemy fire? From the brightness of your mark, I don't think you broke under questioning, so who exactly tipped them off, and are they still alive? That I might kill them myself. It's a complicated story, my prince. Well, Prince Kazar said, inspecting his nails. We will not be ready to mount our assault for several hours. Perhaps you should start explaining. A sailor bustled in with a skin of hot soup and a blanket, both of which were given to Alderu, who dipped his head gratefully. Without daring to so much as glance at Kazar, the sailor departed as quickly as he could. Well, it comes down to the humans, 
Humans? Kazar squinted. He vaguely recalled the species from when he had traveled to the island a little more freely, sowing the seeds of his conquest himself. Before, he had a proper excuse to close his borders and let his agents work to continue the war instead. Short, squishy people look sort of like us, very short lives. Yes, my prince. They held only a small patch of farmland, very little in the way of military resources or aptitude. So you mean to tell me that they have somehow took over the southern half of the island in twenty short years and fortified it against the naval attacks, despite the fact that they should never expect a navy in these waters? Well, no, not quite. Then explain further. Well, uh... That small patch of farmland you refer to, it's a long, thin territory that stretches between Princess Josiah and Prince Aniska's territories. It takes up two-thirds of the shared border, forcing them up north near to the mountains that border our own land in order to fight each other without moving through it. I'm aware of the layout of my own island. They would have been annihilated in fighting between the Alvin kingdoms. Yeah, the humans thought so, too. So when Josiah's troops moved against him, they immediately petitioned Aniska for help, promising an alliance and food donations that would feed Aniska's troops while they moved through the human lands, on the condition that the fields and towns were not damaged. They attempted to protect themselves by turning their lands into a defended wall for Aniska. He would be far too suspicious of a trap to accept such a deal. He was... He asked for their crown princess as a hostage, and they handed her over immediately. Their own heir, he could have slaughtered her. Apparently, she volunteered, and they had a son, a second in line in case of such accidents. The treaty was to last five years, so for five years, Aniska's borders was effectively moved further forward and very well supplied, forcing most of the fighting up to the north part. For a simple price of having a human spine in Niska's court. A clever move on their part, I suppose. But how did the human princess topple in Niska's kingdom? She, um, overhauled the tax system, my prince. Kaza blinked. Uh, repeat that? She overhauled the tax systems, humans. Uh, they, um, have an innate drive to perform hard work almost constantly, whether or not there is glory or power to be had. The absence has strong a negative effect on their mood. Boredom, they call it. If they are deprived, they will invent new forms of work to do. Special types of training called sports, hobbies, and competitions. Or they'll take on some task that needs doing and nobody has found the time for yet. The princess was sequestered from any Aneska's secrets, of course, but within days she was insisting that her captors give her something to do. She wanted to work out the supply line through human territory to minimize the impact to human lands and the resupply costs. Since the humans they were providing them, then this was a mutual benefit. So they allowed her to help. Apparently, she noticed a lot of unnecessary complexity in Aniska's labyrinthian taxation system, had some of his scholars educate her on the mathematical systems involved, and overhauled them, saving Aniska's kingdom some money and quite a lot of labor in tax collection. She was not allowed to contact her own people directly, of course, but she was eventually able to convince some scholars to send enough information to her family that their own system could be adjusted to bring the two into line to ensure easy trade. Apparently, 
the troops moving through human lands had acquired tastes for certain human foods, arts, and fashion. And how exactly does any of this contribute to the well-protected coastline I see before me? As I said, my prince, it is complicated. The taxation system was only the beginning. The princess really started to gain respect of Aniska's court when she began and headed a project to unify and cement the legal system, and along with her drive to establish a unified education system. This was still in progress when the five-year treaty ended, and it was time to release her. She refused to leave, claiming that there was far too much work to do. The hostage refused to be released. Prince Kaza glanced once more at the fate mark on the spy's throat, still glowing brightly. The spy couldn't lie. Either this was true, or somebody had masterfully deceived the man. The human king died that year. Then the princess formally abdicated her throne to her brother and stayed in Aniska's court. She was well respected and no longer a prisoner even in name, so she and a new human king would communicate fairly freely and strengthen the bonds between the two nations even without a formal treaty. But without that treaty, the humans were no longer tied to the war against Princess Josiah. Using the change in leadership as a reason for a change in heart, the human king made overtures of peace and set up a trade with Josiah. And who did he send as a hostage that Josiah would even think to trust him? Um, nobody. Uh, the humans had uh, planned for this. The change in leadership might have been convenient, but the plan was older. When setting up roads and supply lines for Aniska's troops, the humans had to overturn some of their own crops that grow jeskin berries, which humans don't actually eat. For the troops, Kaza said, nodding, but jeskin trees take years to produce any fruit at all, and the fruit increases in quality with age. They wouldn't have been useless for the short time of the treaty, a ploy to placate Aniska, making him believe that they intended to extend the treaty. Between such work and the cooperation of his hostage, he would completely be unprepared for the betrayal. How much of their own copland did they devote to such deception? Everybody knows that land, once seeded with Jeskins, is very difficult to convert to any other crop. A masterful deduction, my prince, but there was in fact no betrayal. While I have no doubt that Aniska believed that the crops were so to supply his future troops, and thus did not question the change, but in fact the supply lines were constructed in such a way that Aniska's troops were given easier access to Josiah's Jeskin crops than any other cropland. I have no doubt that Aniska's forces thought that this was way excellent luck, as they were able to destroy a rather large chunk of Josiah's Jeskin production rather than the more general and more easily recoverable agricultural damage. The end result was that Jeskin berries were a rare commodity in Josiah's lands as Aniska's treaty with the humans had ended. Right about this time, Jeskin plants were beginning to mature. So the king set up trade with Josiah, who blamed Aniska for the destruction of the crops. The humans sold almost all of their stock to Josiah, as the young, bitter berries were of little interest to Aniska's people, who still had their own older crops and acted as an avenue for more older berries into Josiah's lands as well as buying them from Aniska. They feigned fear from her armies and pretended to be tricked into treaties that were extremely advantageous to Josiah's kingdom and ended up selling such berries significantly below cost. 
making up the difference with trade revenue and tax savings from the established systems with the Niska. So both the Niska and Josiah think that they have the humans over a barrel, and that humans are quietly strengthening both sides, even though they are still vulnerable in the middle. Not really strengthening them, my prince, the Jeskin deal is so favorable to Josiah that it collapsed their local Jeskin economy and drove the farmers out of business before the government could react to the price drop. Aniska's human was, um, in what I'm sure was a coincidence, visiting her family at the time, and her brother sent her as an envoy to Josiah, ostensibly to try and negotiate the way out of their crippling Jeskin deal. What she did instead was help Josiah's scholars to tidy up their economy and trade systems so that there were not severe side effects that would starve their population. Although the solutions took long enough that almost all of Josiah's Jeskin fields died in the meantime, leaving her people dependent on trade with the humans until their new crops matured. Since they were, of course, not going to trade with the Niska, while this trading was underway, the human art and food was traded as well, and the traders established networks between Josiah, human, and Niska kingdoms that were largely independent of regent affiliations. At this point, it no longer made sense for either army to fight their way through the human lands. Both were fueling a war effort and wanted the rest of their economy to remain as stable as possible, so fighting was largely restricted to the northern third of the border between them, the part that they actually shared. That's a lovely story for the humans, but it still does not explain how they managed to conquer the coast and build all of these watchtowers and fortifications in ten or so years left on the little story's timeline. The humans didn't conquer the coast, my prince. This is all Alvin territory. Then what does this little story have to do with anything at all? While things didn't really begin to move until the human expanded their own territories all the way up to the mountains, completely separating the two nations. Kazar narrowed his eyes, interested despite himself. I presume the humans did not jeopardize their position with the military assault. Who did they extort so heavily with their trade agreements to make such a valuable land? Ah, I believe that Josiah and Aniska came up with a deal, my prince. Repeat that. Josiah and Aniska drafted agreements to turn over the land. They were not quite ready to sign peace agreements with each other. Every time it seemed like the war would settle, your loyal subjects would find ways to start it again. But, um, we neglected to pay appropriate attention to trade, my prince, and I am ashamed to say we did not notice until it was too late. The two Alvin regents did not trust each other, but they trusted the strength of their connections with the humans. They each agreed to hand over the land to the border to the humans and independently drafted up trade agreements with the humans for it. We tried to dissolve the truces and treaties with false flag operations and misinformation, but they were too stable for us. And the pair were free of war and able to build strength for those remaining years. Is that what you're telling me? After a fashion, my prince, uh, we were stirring the hatred still, trying to break one of the nations so that it would attack the other through the human lands and destroy the stability of the system. To move around human lands, they would have to march through a closed mountain border, which would have been madness. Or, other Ryu glanced at the side where only a couple of layers of wood separated them from the ocean. The ocean that, until Kazar had secretly dealt with them, had been an unpostoppable stew of vicious mermaids. And that's how they noticed that the mermaids were disappearing. 
Prince Kazar stood, hand going to his sword. Impossible! You lie! The spy cowered back. Night Prince, I would never. We tested our weapons in our waters to the north and the island. Not a mermaid was touched down here until we began moving the speed through three weeks ago. The mermaids talk, apparently, and the humans, well... As you've predicted, my prince, dwarves to the northeast of Josiah's territory refused to sell their metals to either the Alvin faction for fear that they would be killed with their own product. And she would have slaughtered them for access. She would have, but from early in the conflict, Aniska had been allowed to move his troops through human lands and forced her to concentrate her forces on the western side to defend against him. Once everyone's positions was relatively stable, the humans moved quickly to establish trade agreements with the dwarves that would forbid dwarven metal being sold to either faction for a decade. They did not want one side to gain arms superior enough to be tempted to destroy the humans, agreements or not, on their way to their enemies. They would have had to travel through Josiah's territory to make such deals with the dwarves. How did she not notice such movements? She did. She sent an escort to guard them and be sure that they got there safely. The human king wrote an agreement in tandem with his sister, Aniska's human courtier, you remember, who had somewhat of a reputation after the improvements that she had made to both kingdoms and was able to convince both sides that this agreement was a good stabilizing factor, like the expansion of human territory. I, um... It's possible that our efforts while increasing the aggression between the two elven kingdoms may have been used to support these very arguments. The mermaids were quartering the fleets being sent against each other, and the coastal towers and guards that you noticed did the rest. But there was fear that adding dwarven metal to one side would tip the balance, and nobody wanted that to be in the other side's favor. But Josiah was the only one with the border with the dwarves. Certain dwarf products had been turning up in Aniska's territory, showing some sort of smuggling route. And the timing of these products showing up was perfect for the humans pushing the proposal that the metal, I presume. Exactly so, my prince. So your point here is that a tiny human settlement with no real military managed to force an entire war that we'd spend so much effort brewing between Aniska and Josiah into the ocean as an exclusively naval conflict, so that it did not only fail to weaken either kingdom as much as we'd hoped, but coincidentally pushed them to guard the very position from which we were to launch our supposedly spies' attack. That is part of it, yes... Well, at least our enemies did not wield dwarven metals. There are... There is more, my prince. The mermaids. What can a sea of dead mermaids possibly add to our current situation? Well, uh, the dwarves wanted certain materials for their side of the trade agreement that the humans couldn't produce for themselves, but they knew where produced in other human colonies. So they went to parley with the mermaids in the hopes of establishing safety for the trading ships. Mermaids do not parlay, they only kill. This is apparently only the case because they rarely need anything. In this particular instance, the humans had something to trade that they desperately needed. They were losing clanmates to a magical fire that burned through salt water to the north of the island, around, um, around our lands, my prince. The mermaids tipped off the other kingdoms. After all this is careful planning, it came down to mermaids. If they weren't already dead, I'd kill them again. The spy cleared his throat. Um, about that, my prince. What? What is it? Well, 
As I said, the mermaids did need something from the humans and from Aniska and Josiah. Out with it. They wanted access to freshwater rivers. Josiah's eyes widened. Ocean mage by a dozen burn in freshwater. They reached the same conclusions, it seemed. The guard gates on the rivers were temporarily thrown open, and, um, well... Kazar didn't wait to hear more. He was already storming to the deck. Any ocean mage by a stolen hand, prepare it. I don't care how little. Get ready, any of you can find. Prepare to defend the boats. Signal the rest of the fleet. But he knew that it wouldn't be enough, and already the mermaid's song was beginning... He spun to face the spy who had followed him up on deck, wrapped one hand around his throat, and forced him against the ship's reining. Traitor! He snarled. Here you stand after wasting my time with slong stories, knowing full well that we would be under attack at any minute. But the man's face mark was still glowing bright, declaring his devotion to Kazar's kingdom. What sorcery have you put on your fate mark? Do make the lie to me. Is this some new trick also made up by the humans? Humans cannot do magic. Alderiu choked. My mark doesn't lie. I am loyal as the day I took my oath. I am completely loyal to the bone, and I do what I do out of love for our kingdom. Is that so? When the mermaids are closing in enough to catch you, I will throw you into the water. You have until then to explain. I have been explaining. I've been explaining that this war cannot be won, that there is a better way, a stronger way. When they imprisoned us in the outer wall, they told us what to tell you when we were rescued. It was our one chance to save the fleet. And what traitor words did my enemies tell you to spit? I am to offer you a place as a new confederate. Kazar startled, dropped the spy. He collapsed onto the deck, spluttering. What? It won't work with just two nations. Three are needed for voting and negotiation to take place. Aniska and Josiah want you with them. I have been told to tell you that if you approach peaceably, everyone can get to forming a council immediately without any fighting. If you attack... They will be forced to defend their lands, and will offer again to you or your heir once every navy has been repelled. I would urge you to take the first route to avoid losing the lives of any soldiers. You would urge me. The singing of the mermaids was getting stronger, settling into Gazar's bones. He picked the spy up again, face twisted into a snarl. We would have had a chance if you had warned us about the mermaids right away instead of delaying. You are costing these soldiers their lives. You would have stormed the beach, been cut down. Alderiu choked. I had to make you understand this is the only option, best option. For our kingdom. Traitor! No! I acted in your best interest. The mermaids were very close. On the deck, sailors were preparing to pour their last meager reserves of mage fire. Perhaps they might buy enough time to get at least a few of their boats to shore to face the defenses there. Zar tossed the spy overboard and put a hand to his sword. How many ships? How many mermaids? Last... He hadn't asked whether the dwarves were involved in the beach defense. If they'd brought their metals, then they'd be the slim chance of making it through the defenses, with a sizable force to dwindle to nothing. While the soldiers and sailors busied themselves with sailing for the shore at top speed and attempting to hold off the mermaids for as long as possible, Kazar 
pulled out a telescope to his eye and scanned the defenses, Alves manned the towers, most with the red insignia of Josiah's people. It was her border, but about a quarter of them were in Niska's blue. They were working together, and they were all staring at his feet, watching, waiting. An entire island waiting for his decision, while his perfect plan broke around him because of some random group of primitives who hadn't even known who he was until a few months ago. Frick, humans. End of story. And that, my friends, concludes this dose of science fiction fun. I hope that you enjoyed. And if you did, please don't forget to support the author from the link down below. But if you want to support this channel, there are links as well down below for you to help with. But the easiest way would be to share this video. And if you are so inclined, subscribe as well. I will see you all in the next episode, and I hope that you all have a fantastic time until then. Cheers.